0: Welcome to Vaginance. We're very happy to be here. Yeah. So for today's episode, we kind of tossed around a few different things to discuss. I believe that the original root of the conversation was we wanted to talk about our shifting relationship dynamics because for the past year or so that we've been starting to discuss finances, we've also experienced different um, relationship seasons. So I think that was the initial, the initial seed, uh, and that little seed has sprouted into discussing finances with a partner, or um, how you might manage your finances with a partner, or how money comes into play with you and your partner in general, um, regardless of what level of relationship you're at. Uh, and so. We read a book kind of in preparation of this. Uh, It's called The Two-Income Trap by Elizabeth Warren and her daughter, whose name eludes me in the moment. Amelia something Tiagi? There you go. Uh, Amelia Tiagi. Amelia, perhaps Warren Tiagi. (laughs) Maybe
1: it is. I don't know. (laughs) Uh,
0: So we read that uh, in preparation and kind of all just came together with a few thoughts that we might have on... Money and relationships, which seems like the obvious marriage of subjects for this podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think we're on brand with this one. Um, so yeah, I'm really I'm looking forward to this conversation because I am very much the novice in compared in comparison to everyone else here. Me and Andy have been together for just over five months. We've just moved in together, uh, and honestly he went into this relationship knowing that he was dating someone who is the a co-host of a vagina finance (laughs) podcast so obviously finances come up like a ton we talk about money a lot um i'm also in this all-encompassing real estate search phase of life so that comes up constantly so money is very much a part of our conversation but we really haven't had a direct Okay, we are theoretically a cohesive unit for the foreseeable future. Therefore, we might start considering our money in that way. Um, We really haven't talked about that. We haven't talked about financial goals as a coupling, we haven't talked about where we see ourselves financially specifically. Anyways, all that to say is as much as we talk conceptually about money, we really haven't talked about it as a couple and what that means. Um, so I kind of would love to just hear y'all's thoughts coming from different but definitively much longer uh, relationships. Longevities.
2: Yeah. So, Julie, I feel like your finances are probably the most combined of all of us because you've been together for your entire adult life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Zach and I have been
1: together for 15 and a half years, Mm -hmm. and we combined our finances basically immediately um, <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh it <a> <laughs> because system. there was
1: no money and so to pay bills you must out of necessity combine everything yeah <laughs> um but my my first thought with you just sort of breaking that down Becca was actually that I think you are so far ahead because you've had so much agency over your own finances throughout your adult life Mm -hmm. like you've really paid attention to that as opposed to someone like myself when you get in a relationship really young and you're both scrambling trying to get your careers on track and it's not that I didn't want to be involved in the finances but we just sort of out of necessity split responsibilities Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. typically in North America women hand the finances off to the man Mm -hmm. and so for a long time, like that's sort of what we did. Zach ran with the finances. I dealt with a lot of other stuff. Mm-hmm. And so it was only in the last few years as our income picked up and we we're working on our debt payoff that I got like re-engaged with our finances.
0: Mm.
1: Um, so I think the way that I would approach finances in a relationship now would be so different mm. from how my financial adulthood started mm-hmm. in a relationship
0: so how, how, like what, what would be different about if you were to meet Zach today and start a relationship, what would you, what might you approach differently financially? I think maintaining separate finances and having combined
1: accounts requires you to have that dialogue mm-hmm. about who's contributing to what, how do we make this equal against each of our pay, mm-hmm. not necessarily like a 50-50 split, but mm-hmm. a proportional egalitarian sort of system, where the higher income earner, let's say, makes two thirds of the income. So they contribute two thirds of the rent Mm -hmm. into the joint account. So you sort of parse out joint expenses and individual expenses. And that way, that takes a lot of the like shame on frivolous purchases away. Because if you have something that's really important for you to be able to spend money on, Mm -hmm. but it's not something your partner prioritizes, and your partner's going to have those things. We don't all like the same things. Mm -hmm. And having your individual accounts means that you can do that yourself as long as you're maintaining your responsibility to the joint system. And this isn't like a problem that Zach and I have. Um, We're both spenders. We don't really judge each other's purchases, but I think it's super common. And then I think focusing and this is something we're sort of like rebuilding now that we're actually doing retirement accounts and stuff, but making sure that we're setting up those individually. So we're both contributing equally to our own retirement. Mm -hmm. And that you know, in theory, we're still together at that point and it all comes back mm-hmm. as joint finances. But a lot of what this book, The Two Income Trap, raised for me and a lot of other research I was doing was the fact that when you have a primary income earner, mm-hmm. usually the retirement account focuses on them yeah. and the stay at home mom does not contribute to hers. And most marriages end in divorce. Yeah. And so that gets really messy and so many things. So I just think like really having that focus on approaching finances both as an individual Mm -hmm. and in combination, Mm -hmm. but not one or the other.
3: Interesting about the IRA. I was reading some um, like pros and cons of like financial matrimony. And one of the things that is available to you in certain circumstances, if you're if you are the non-working spouse, you can open up a spousal IRA that allows you that allows your partner to contribute money to your retirement account essentially, even though you're not actively earning income. Wow. That's cool. That yeah. is cool. Do you remember what the limits were on that? I don't know all the details. It said it it just said if you qualify. So you'd have to go in and look at like what you qualify for and what the limits were to those accounts. But there is a situation in which you can open up a IRA account, even as a non working spouse
1: all I want to do is
2: rant about the single income traps after
1: reading this book.
2: Well, and I think so many people, maybe not in our generation as much, but in the generation above us are kind of like what you said, traditionally, like the husband takes care of the finances and don't, even have conversations about what their finances are looking like. And sometimes one spouse may have no idea that their family's in financial trouble. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Or, or even if the family is doing well financially after some one person has been controlling the finances for decades, Mm -hmm they don't want someone else looking over their shoulder. Yeah. And so that's a whole nother issue when you're coming around to the point of like, okay, when I when the finances were handed off to one partner early in the relationship, there wasn't that much to manage. But over time, the assets for that family have grown. And now we're in an estate planning situation and the controlling party doesn't want their decision-making judged or looked at.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: Divorce is usually the time that people find out what the real state of affairs is right.
3: And I hey, do think no pun intended. Hey. <laughs> I do think it too. A lot of us do get into relationships, you know, in our twenties and thirties when we still don't have that much money. Mm-hmm. And so you do tend to get involved with somebody whenever you're still like trying to figure out like exactly what you said, you're still trying to figure out your careers. Like, you don't have any money or very little. So you don't think about those things. You don't think that it's not like a necessity Mm -hmm. um, to discuss like combining finances and how you're gonna split things. Um, And also it's just, if you're not married, I do think marriage makes a difference, right? Cause when you're married, there's this legal aspect and you're like, okay, we are in this. Like I feel more comfortable combining, at least for me, Mm -hmm. I feel more comfortable combining things like that, like legal things. If i'm married to someone versus if i'm just in a relationship with someone if we've combined everything and then we break up it's like i mean you can still get divorced but there's less security there's less of feeling of security even though it's kind of an illusion anyways it is that like well we're just we're just dating why are we combining all of our finances you know mm-hmm. right I, th- I think it's good that there's not necessarily the impetus to combine
1: when you are not married but i right. think what a lot of people don't understand is that marriage as far as the government is concerned has nothing to do with love and is a financial contract.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and if you sign that contract without having your own prenup or postnup in place, what you're basically signing is an asset allocation for divorce. Yeah, based on whatever your state's rules are.
3: You're saying that's I what will the marriage contract.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a financial joining yeah. of two people, and the state has rules for if you break that contract, what happens?
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, I mean, like, it just makes you want like, stay tuned for a follow-up episode of pre-nup, post-nup, which yes. Julie is very interested in, and I think we're all very interested in, because I think yeah. it's something that's going to be so prolific, ubiquitous, like, it's going to be all over the place, I'd say, in the next few years. I think yeah. it's going to be super commonplace. Um,
1: I hope so. I think it's best for both parties involved. And I mm-hmm. think um, it makes a big difference for marriages and relationships staying together. Mm-hmm. When both people early on in the relationship can come to the table and just sort that out.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh, it takes so much stress off. Mm-hmm. Especially like, I think I we I haven't really thought about it that much. But for me, money is just always on my brain, always has been. I've always been stressed, like not even stressed, just like it's just something I've always deeply considered at all moments. And it's hard for me to be present a lot of the times, especially when I was younger, um, if I like felt like my financial security was at risk in any way. Um, and I don't even mean like, gambling or I'm in a dangerous situation. I mean, like I'm out to dinner and we're all splitting the bill and I don't know what people are going to (laughs) order. And I'm 24 and I don't have a lot of money. So I'm just like hyper aware of things and I can't haven't always been good at being present. And I just think that a prenup would help me be so much more present and relaxed in a contractual like matrimonial union, um, where it's like, okay, well, no matter what happens, at least we know that X is going to happen with our like financial security. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And it's something I really, I really haven't thought about much before. And it just seems like something with my personality would be so helpful.
3: I agree. Um, but yeah, I was also going to make a point about the money. Um, I read an interesting fact for one of the cons, I was reading pros and cons of marriage, like financial marriage. Uh, <laughs> the pros and cons of the marriage. Financial, yeah, the financial <laughs> pros and cons of marriage. And one of the cons is that money is one of the leading causes for fighting in marriage and top predis- uh, predictor of divorce. Mm-hmm. And that's partly because we tend to marry our financial opposites, according to at least one academic study. As a result, financial planning can become a big source of stress in matrimony. So there's usually in a relationship a spender and a saver and it can become a very huge source of contention in a lot of I am both those things within myself. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I am too, yeah. I, like,
1: no, I'm mostly a spender actually. <laughs> like I think the spender saver thing is interesting because I think it's actually way too simplified. Mm. And I don't think financial opposites right. exist quite the way that they like to boil them down in relationships but i think it's more about the things you would spend money on aren't the same as the things your partner would spend money on totally that doesn't make you an opposite but it does make you fight if Mm -hmm. you're spending joint money on individual purchases and
3: i've actually had a lot of conversations with my family about this because we'll all shit on each other for the dumb things we buy right but it's like (laughs) you're not any better than me you just decide to spend your money on shit that i wouldn't right and vice versa like it's not that i'm a worse spender than you you all also spend a lot of money you just don't want to spend money you don't spend twenty dollars on this netflix movie but you'll spend you know three hundred dollars on this meal whereas i don't want to spend more than twenty dollars on a meal but i'll i'll spend ten bucks on the netflix movie you know it's just like yeah. things like that where it's you just have different priorities totally but that's a great way to put it i probably would spend three hundred dollars on a meal though because yeah I was about say, I was like, that's a bad example because you love yeah no i meals. do i love me some some expensive meals Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I like also was listening to a few podcasts over the past, like in preparation for this. And one concept that came up a lot, I was specifically looking for couples finance podcast episodes, which was yielded some very interesting information. Mm -hmm. But one thing that kept coming up and seems like something that I would be very into, and I am very into it, is the concept of a money date where you schedule a date with your partner uh when you're at like your peak emotional performance not like of all time but just like if y'all are happy in the mornings you're going to do it in the morning if you're happy in the, you know and y'all like block out time to just talk about financial goals what you're spending your money on now how you want to be spending your money mm. um and like it's you you have your first one where you're kind of courting each other and make it sexy and then you make it regular Anyways, so all that to say is I love the idea of a money date. We've never done that, me and Andy. And I was wondering if that's something y'all have ever done with your partners. And if so, how did it go?
2: Yeah, so Phil and I do our relationship report cards. And we did our first one of those since we've been living together together. Um, This week, actually, and we added a financial discussion to it as well. That's awesome. How'd it go? It went really well. It was kind of generic, like not too detailed as far as like dollar amounts or anything, Mm -hmm. but it was like, what are your financial goals? How can I help? What Mm -hmm. are your financial goals? How can I help? Like, as a couple, what should we be spending money on and who should be spending, who should be paying for it? Because, like, some of the house stuff I pay for because I'm the landlord, right? Right. the deck needs to be fixed. I'm not going to ask Phil to, mm-hmm. like, contribute to that. But other things like things like furniture, something that's sort of ours, then we do share. So just sort of navigating those lines. That is it's Sometimes there's some gray areas there. I have the um, same thing with me and Joey because I'm yeah. the landlord. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we talked about that a little bit. Um, and, yeah, it was just sort of a short – it was the first one, so it wasn't very long, and it was short – um generic, but it was good. It was really nice to like open that door and feel comfortable talking about money with each other, like set the stage for future money conversations and not feel like the I don't know, there is some shame around like, um so I spent money on this, but like Mm -hmm. just being like, let's not be like that. Let's just talk about it and like get it over with. Yeah. So like even though we didn't get too detailed setting the stage for future conversations, I Mm -hmm. think was good. Absolutely.
1: Well, I think it's so important to not expect perfection. Like we can all dream up what how we want to spend our money and resources. And then a week later, check in on how we did. And of course, there's going to be that the buffer, the difference that we blew over. We are not perfect. We can't predict what the week is going to bring exciting new things we might want to go participate in mm-hmm. um, or that we're tired and didn't get enough sleep. But it's just having those regular check ins where you can realize like, oh, If I stay out too late at night, then the next day, I don't want to cook at home and I go and blow $100 on a meal at a restaurant. So rather than this being really like a financial shame situation, it's more of a, I need to make sure I'm going to bed by a certain time because it helps my finances so much. Or if I know I'm going to be out late on a night, then I can start to predict that I'm going to spend more money the day after and how can I work that into the finances of the rest of the week? Those regular check-ins help you identify your own spending patterns And then address everything in your life as like a whole system and not just feel terrible about yourself when these are like very normal spending patterns. Agreed. I don't know if that really related to what you said, but
0: no, I think it did. Yeah, I think not. Seeking perfection is pretty key anytime you're talking about your partner, about anything. <laughs> <laughs> you must be perfect. <laughs> yeah, I honestly, that is something that's hard for me to remember sometimes. I feel like I have very high expectations of my partners. Oh,
2: me too. I I definitely definitely I, that do. is something <laughs> that has definitely come up in my relationship where I and i think we do it to each other we hold each other to these very high expectations mm-hmm. this is like you're my partner and i want you to be the best and i want to be the best for you and it's hard sometimes to like keep up with those and i have to remember that i am i set my bar very high and it's not always fair mhm definitely
1: I feel like the most conflict for me personally happens on a day where maybe I'm feeling like I'm more my perfect self. Yes. And the partner is not having on the same cycle. Totally agree. 100%. And so... Uh, unfortunately for my lovely husband. I will take it out on him on that day just because the differential is high. Because you're feeling so powerful. (laughs) When in reality, I am fully aware that I am far from perfect most days. Yeah. Disagree. That's a work in progress always. Yeah, always for sure.
2: But luckily we have partners who are very accommodating to our (laughs) unique requirements. Oh boy, howdy.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I know that it's something I would like to incorporate for us is just like I I like the idea of a monthly check in in general, like y'all have like just a general report card um, where you can just like have an open table discussion about what's been going on.
2: I mean, we do ours more like quarterly, but I mean, you could always alter how often you do it, like Mm -hmm. start it monthly and if you feel you need to do it more you could do it weekly
0: like Mm kind of thing yeah i love that but i yeah and i think the addition of financial discussion is so critical because it is like some it's just so easy to not talk about it's so easy to not talk about Mm -hmm. like but and and kind of the ones that i was listening to were they were more talking from a perspective of a married couple who has shared finances um But I think it works either way of even if you have totally individual finances to come together and be like, Whoa, okay, in my pie chart of my spending this month, this is what I've been spending, this is how much I've been spending on us going out together. That you know, like I think it's helpful. um, no matter kind of what your financial situation looks like with your partner.
2: Yeah, like even if it's if you're in your joint finance aspect of the joint finances are small, like who buys the toilet paper, yeah. It's good to talk about it rather than fight about it. Yes. <laughs> I know in roommate situations, at least I've heard the story so many times, someone being like, I'm always the one to buy paper towels for the kitchen mm-hmm. and it's such a small thing. It's not even a money at that point, it's just like a thing that you wish someone else would contribute to and so like instead of letting a relationship with your partner get to that point just be like hey i would love it if we shared this responsibility Mm -hmm. it doesn't even have to be your finances being joint kind of thing
1: yeah you mean the soap wasn't automatically magically refilling itself the entire time you lived with a roommate blows my mind <laughs>
2: um as far as me and phil go we do kind of like what julie was saying because we're not married we've only been living together for a little while um we do keep our finances pretty separate um she makes her own paycheck does whatever the hell she wants with it and then pays rent to me as the landlord um i think i offered her a fair rent amount for like us being a couple Mm. living in the house together
0: and certain perks yeah
2: (laughs) we will eventually like reassess probably annually like how we both feel about that kind of um number and stuff but we recently did get a joint credit card account because phil does all of the grocery shopping and then usually i would just pay her for half the groceries But I find that oftentimes, and this is Phil's personality, she'll just be like, oh, it's on me. Don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. So I know for a fact she was spending way more on groceries than I was. So I was like, Mm -hmm. let's just get a joint credit card account. Then we put all the groceries on that and we equally split that bill in half at the end of the month and when we that's use that really smart that's really yeah, smart. i need to do that we do that for going out to dinner now too or for like if we get food delivered for dinner or drinks with friends
3: that's so smart i might suggest that to joey because right now that's something we haven't figured out is like one of us will pay for dinner one time and they'll be like oh you can get it next time or like we'll go out and like He'll get drinks at the bar beforehand, and then I'll get dinner. Vice versa. you know, like we yeah. kind of just play it by ear. And then I'll buy groceries whenever I'm feeling like, oh, we should get some groceries, and I'll buy like the Home Chef. But then he'll buy his dinner sometime. We just we there's no tracking of any of right. that. It'd yeah. probably be smart just put all the food stuff. And then you on get the credit, credit card
2: reward points, you yeah. know, and then yeah. you split it down the middle at the end of the month. And kind of, I mean, it's only been like two months that we've been doing it, but so far it's been working out really well. And then we don't have the guilt about like you've bought me dinner twice in a row. Like I have to do something nice for you now. Right. It's just like, Oh, we just put on a credit card. I really <laughs> like that idea.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I feel like we're so lucky to like, I, I was thinking about this when you were saying you and Jack getting together a billion years ago, there was like pre Venmo, right. And Venmo makes this so much easier of just like, I'll tell Andy how much I spent at the grocery store and he can just Venmo it for me. But I like the idea of the credit card, the joint credit card, because it, eventually yeah i don't want to create a dynamic where i'm like collecting funds all the time and i i don't want to like remind someone to pay me for groceries and i don't and i don't know if my partner would like that feeling of being like asked i don't know like maybe i'm like creating weird dynamics in my head no
2: but there's like i don't know some kind of chivalry where you're like you go buy groceries and then you have to be like don't worry about it like this is on me and And like i do that all we do that all the time
0: i find myself doing that too like i for on Friday I went grocery shopping and I was like okay well I, some of this was just for me so I'm gonna take that out and I'll tell him it's this much but then I forgot like two things so I had to go to two other grocery stores and I was like well that was my fault I'm not gonna include that on the bill I <laughs> if that makes any difference at all and so I just charged him for like a portion of the first one and didn't even you know like because it, it feels petty to be like actually I spent 24 more dollars on another store even though it's like yeah. Not yeah, petty because you're just splitting it down the middle well
1: and that yeah doing it once a month just simplifies Mm -hmm. so much I think in that type of a system where instead of having to think about this and have the labor of requesting money every time Mm -hmm. you guys buy any little thing at a grocery store Mm -hmm. it's just once a month you sync up that's 12 times a year yeah that's way easier and if it's really something where you're buying something for yourself that's not for the household mm-hmm. or not in normal household expenses, then you would just put that on a different card. Yeah, so it never comes it. into play. Yep. And the only thing I would say is um, credit cards are a little bit more risky in the event that you split up because mm. if your name is on an account that someone else has their name on also so you're liable for that debt and they may run the debt up to the full balance mm-hmm. possibly yeah. increase the limit yeah. run the the debt up even more so this might be something where obviously if you're in a good trusted relationship go the credit card route so you can get the perks if you're not ready for that yet you can do the exact same system with
3: a, a joint part. checking
1: account where mm-hmm. you both contribute cash up front to the beginning
0: of the month. that's a good idea
3: so, do you want me to run through some of the pros and cons that I found? I want you to talk
2: about you and Joe's yeah. financial, be it existing or non-existing.
3: Oh. Um, You know, it's really interesting. I feel like we're at that stage of our relationship where we're, you know, we're at like almost three years now. Woo! Yeah. Damn, girl. Right. Wow! Three years and three months. And in, in three months, it'll be three years. Yes. So, we're at that weird spot where, like, we're, like, kind of starting to like combine some things like i put him on my car insurance because he didn't have a car for a long time and then he had like the insurance where it's just like protects the driver and not the car and then i was like well you're driving my car so you should be on my insurance um so which actually one of the benefits i found was that it was way cheaper to have us both on the same insurance my insurance went down putting him on my Hmm. thing So, so like, I was paying more as a single person than putting him on. Well, you're more
0: trustworthy knowing that you have a
3: partner. Yeah, I added Phil to my car, and it was only $12 more
2: per year.
1: Yeah.
3: Oh, my God. Yeah. Mine went down $100. Mine
1: went down $100. Call them just for kicks and curiosities. Please call them and ask them what it will cost if you remove him. Because what were they billing you before? Like, had they just set up your insurance so long ago that they never adjusted your rates down? No, this was new insurance. That's so weird. Call them and ask what it costs for you to take them off. (laughs) I bet it doesn't go up. It might. It probably won't. It'd probably just
2: be the same. And then put him but back on. But isn't that insane? It like, back down again. <laughs> just <keep> putting <laughs> him on and putting him back on.
3: the a loophole in the fucking system. <laughs> <laughs> it just goes down $100 yeah. every time. They'll never catch on to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I just thought that was crazy that like he's a completely different individual. And my insurance went down by putting him on it. That's so weird. It was insane. So that's one potential benefit of combining things. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's it's funny because like whenever I, I bought this house last year, I was so desperate for someone to co-sign with me because uh, I really wanted this house. And I was like, they're not going to give it to me unless I co-sign with someone. Uh, and so I was like asking my mom and she was kind of like on the fence about it. And then I was bitching to Joey about it. And he like came up to me the next day and was like, um, so I've thought about it. And like, if you really need someone to co-sign with you, um, I could probably do that. And I was like, it's fine. I'm already agreed. He was like, thank God. <laughs> like, he was so terrified. Aww. But it was really sweet that he even offered. But yeah, we we still have our pretty much separate. It, we just try to like, like I was saying before, we try to hit each other back for like, oh, you got dinner. I'll get dinner this time. Um, he's and on my insurance. He pays rent at your house. Right? He pays rent. At very subsidized rent because, you know. He's artists. fucking the landlord. <laughs> um, I could be charging him more, but I don't, out of the kindness of my heart. But no, it's it's good. I do think we're probably at that stage where, like, we should be talking about finance a little more. And I've been kind of like pushing him a lot the last couple of years of like, hey, you should think about the future. And like, what career do you want? Like we do have those conversations where I'm like, in a perfect world, Mm. what do you wanna do with your life? Like what makes you happiest? What do you wanna do like in your career? Where do you see yourself being? Like, do you feel like you're making enough money right now? What kind of money do you think you would need to make to be happy? Like, We do have those conversations. When it comes to financial
1: intermingling, Mm -hmm. what are areas where, like, absolutely not, I will not mix this? Or I think at some point we'll have to mix this, and I'm not sure how that's going to go.
2: I don't think I could ever see us putting, like, our paychecks into one account Mm -hmm. and then, like, Mm -hmm. spending freely out of that account, kind of like you were saying, you and Zach just have it all as one thing. Like, I can't see us ever doing that. I think we'll always be separate. But as far as, like, big purchases go... I think that might be a, like if we wanted to buy a house together, I'm not sure what that would look like yet because we do have different incomes and different savings rates. And if you're co-signing on a house, it's jointly owned. So it's like, how do we split the responsibilities? Who's paying Mm -hmm. more? If one person's paying more, then how does that balance out with like, I don't know, other responsibilities? Post snap. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know. Those are things we haven't navigated. and I'm not sure how they're not married yet. So
1: prenup, baby. Either way, just some sort of contract stating that your amount you get out of the asset, if it ever gets sold, is relative to the percentage you put in, like something like that, so that you're not having to square up in other parts of your life. You can just treat that asset as one thing, but make sure that the amount you're contributing gets accounted for.
2: Yeah. i could also see like i put the money down for a fixer upper but
3: then she does all the like construction totally. projects and then it would yeah. be pretty equal um that's so hard like if you do break up though like how do you go back and track all of that like that's a lot of work to go back in and see okay you did this i did this this is how much money i put in maybe you know i just i could see that being very sticky
1: well that that's the whole idea of the post snap is like post marriage as your assets change. Mm-hmm. and you you buy the house as part of the discussion of buying the house and who's making the contributions you make an update to that contract mm-hmm. so that you don't have it's not like a recreating history type of situation mm-hmm. right. it's just like oh we need to update that just like we need to update our medical advocacy forms and that type of stuff
3: mm-hmm. i do see it being like it's a little scary thing about as you combine more and more things having to track all of that mm. like okay we need to figure out like in life insurance and medical insurance and assets and all the like you know medical so life all this stuff clutter. it's so much digital clutter and i hate digital clutter i fucking <laughs> hate it i tell everybody i fucking hate it put it all in the trash can delete it like i yeah even spreadsheets though it's like how many spreadsheets like i my whole life is spreadsheets my job is all spreadsheets that does make me nervous like another thing i have to track outside of my what i do for a living you know um i think buying a house too i agree though that would be something i'd be very scared to do with a partner well and then there i mean there's
2: the issue of like maybe one day phil might get an inheritance and to me and like the way that i kind of grew up was like i don't want anyone else's money so if she gets an inheritance i'm like that's yours do what you want with it if you want to buy us a house with it fuck yeah it's in your name and i'm living there for free like yeah kind of situation so i think it goes both ways where i'm like i don't want your money like to be m- my money necessarily i want your yeah. money to be your money but then, and I then we can them. have good times together with exactly. our money yeah
0: i think for me what i'm apprehensive about is yeah buying a house. Um, Which it's funny because like so many people I know bought a house with their partner. And now I'm like, that seems really impossible. How did y'all do that? But apparently it can happen. Julie's proved it. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I think what I'm apprehensive about is not anything that happens in reality, but what happens in my brain when we combine finances. Like I kind of think about like how if you both have some at some downtime And you're like, is this how you want to schedule? You want to spend your downtime? Because I want to spend our downtime like this. And I get in my head of like wanting to control how my partner spends their relax relaxation time <laughs> i want to somehow have a say mm-hmm. so the idea of having combined finances where i can like see line by line like where my partner is like, spending you money spend money on this exactly like, are you sure you want to spend money on that like- exactly like meanwhile i'm buying like a dawson's creek tapestry for 700 but i'm like um I'm sorry. Did you spend twelve dollars on beer yesterday? <laughs> you know, and, and like, like, but not. And that is not correct. But I think I can. I fear that that's how my brain would work, where I'd be like looking through the statements and be like, why is why was this being purchased here, and like holding them to a different standard than I hold
3: myself. Well, I think that's really common in relationships. That is the thing that people do. Yeah, I don't want. I that's I what like, I'm afraid of. I feel like there's no shame in forever keeping your finances somewhat Maybe
0: separate. Exactly. Agreed. That's just how my brain works because I look at my spending compulsively. Mm-hmm. So to to have access to someone else's sounds way too so much extra do,
2: daily yeah. stress. Yeah, I do already having no idea what the numbers are have already said a few times like make sure you're paying attention to your retirement accounts babe <laughs> and then I would be <laughs> so annoyed with you I'd yeah. uh, be like what kind of what kind of things are you invested in your 401k and she'd be like I don't know I just like put money in there I'm like hmm <laughs>
1: <laughs> you're like, Maggie, i just told you is i it- bought this because i wanted someone to celebrate it with yeah. me now you're oh my- talking about my goddamn
2: retirement account. is it not index funds <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> do you even listen to our podcast yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i feel like i know a lot of people that are married now that kind of do it that way where they have their individual accounts and they kind of like manage that themselves but then they have like one joint credit card for like Household stuff and like big purchases. Yeah. Which makes the most sense to me. Like, why does your partner need to have complete access to all of your money? Right. Exactly.
0: So, another couple podcasts I listened to today, there was actually, I listened to a handful, but two were from the same podcast. and It was called Couples Financial Co- Coach Podcast. Wow. That and, is so specific. Yeah. And this guy's really cool. It's a male host, which most of the others I listened to were male hosts and they were awful. Um, but this guy was really thoughtful and mindful and gentle in the way he spoke. I listened to one where the intro's like, bah, 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 DIY. Yeah. Do you want to be successful like your friends? <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> so obnoxious. Oh my God. Um, but this guy was really sweet. And he had uh, one episode, he had someone who I really think we should contact. Her name is Yulin Lee. And she does like financial coaching for women, usually like post divorce or post divorce after they lost a loved one um, and like helps them like kind of level out and figure out their finances again. That's amazing. Yeah, she was so cool. (laughs) Um, And she just talked, I don't know, she was really, it was a really interesting podcast and she was actually specifically talking about real estate. Um, It was a really good podcast. And then I listened to another one, which he had another female on and I don't remember her name, but she worked with women who had been through financial abuse uh, and they talk about how This is kind of like off what you were saying a little bit ago um, about how 94 to 98 percent of all domestic abuse cases include financial abuse. Um, And she was arguing those are the technical statistics, but she was arguing she thinks it's more like 99 percent. Basically, not like dollars and cents necessarily, but like withholding m- funds from partners or like asking every single thing they spent money on um, or it just like using money as a way t- means to control a your weapon. partner. Yeah. Um, and it is so interesting. And they one thing they talked about was like, what's one thing to look out for if you are feeling uneasy financially with your partner, like what's a big red flag? And she's like, well, it's like normal and fine if one person wants to manage the finances in a relationship. But if there's ever a point in time where the other partner has to explicitly ask consent to spend their own earned money, and then one partner gets to say yes or no definitively, that's the red flag that you're in a situation that is not a healthy level of control. And anyways, it was just a really interesting podcast because I hadn't really thought about domestic abuse separating out specifically financial abuse, but it's so prolific, it's everywhere. Um, And like, you might even see it in like people you know without them maybe even realizing it's happening. And I don't know, I think it's a good thing to be aware of and to like be mindful of um, in the way like we treat our own partners. And when we like get happy with friends and hear about their partners
2: is very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And now I'm going to like try to be more conscious of some of those words. Like I definitely don't hear them in my relationship, but like around friends and family, like maybe it's happening and I never knew.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, cuz it it does make sense that it's a slippery slope. And like and then maybe more obvious ones are like if you really want to go back to school or switch jobs and your partner's like, no, don't go back to school, don't work, don't do is if your partner's like heavily encouraging you not to work and not to earn your own income. Right. To like, be dependent on you. Exactly. That's a big yeah. deal. Don't do anything that gives you independence
2: from yeah. me. I am heavily encouraging my partner to become my sugar mama. So <laughs> <I know. laughs> quite the opposite. Like, Please. <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I do want to get into the book, but this does this did remind me of some of the main points i thought about like the single income trap Mm. because in the book um elizabeth warren and amelia warren tiagi yeah that makes sense (laughs) i felt like they were quite sort of as as women in the workforce i felt like they were quite out of touch with this stay-at-home mother that they idolize in the book so much Mm. and I was super disappointed that they refer to themselves as feminists in the way that they talked about women in the book. Mm-hmm. We're like, the entire time, when they talk about the primary breadwinner, it was always the husband.
2: I feel like I agree that that is definitely the language used in the book, but a lot, I feel like a lot of their references are like historical references. Mm-hmm. And they're like, this is how
3: it has been historically.
2: I feel like she does say stay at home parent. Yeah, she does a say stay few at home
3: parent. But. We all assume that it's the woman.
2: Yeah. And then when
1: she talks about like the real economic value of this woman as a stay-at-home person, mm-hmm. is that she can be the backup worker who can earn twenty-seven percent of what her husband was making as a gap filler. That might not be the right number. Right. But it was if something job, terribly yeah. low. Um, Which just reinforced the fact that you've taken this woman out of the workforce, so she doesn't have the career experience, so she can't get a high paying job. So she doesn't have that much economic value in the workforce because she's had to stay home type of thing. But then we expect her to suddenly jump into the workforce for pennies. While her husband's still looking for a job Mm -hmm. as if she wasn't doing anything like who's picking up what she's dropping to do that Mm -hmm. and that her economic value once again was being able to drop everything and take care of junior when he falls terribly ill. Or when the aging grandfather falls sick, she's the one who steps in as the long-term caretaker until grandpa passes away. Mm-hmm. She says this type of stuff But over again, I and think over. a lot of that
2: was historically women have done that as yeah. the caretakers. And she's like, this has fallen on women. Therefore, it needs to be discussed that that's w- w- what women have traditionally.
1: Right, but she's pro. She's like, this is what we've lost. This is what we need back is women serving this role in society. That's what pissed me off. I totally understand that historically and today mm-hmm. women serve that role. I think they should be paid for it yeah, in yeah. that way and not and not this assumption that they're not dropping a full schedule worth of work that is unpaid in order to take over this other unpaid labor. Yeah,
3: mm-hmm. I don't think she's saying that she we're missing that. I think she's saying, because literally, so in the last chapter, she talks about how specifically parents need to advocate for more change so that they have more support systems in place to make up for the fact that, the you know, their two incomes still leads to bankruptcy. It still leads to all of these economic failures and financial issues. That's a failure of the government. Like, I feel like her overarching, commentary was like there are systemic problems in the government that causes this repeated issue with parents having children and going to bankruptcy
1: definitely so the book was very much about subprime mortgages pre the 2008 crisis so a lot of that industry has changed bankruptcy regulation which since then has also largely changed and um, inflated real estate prices due to school district funding. Yeah. So it was a very much... Um, a call to the government to re-regulate some of these things
3: but all of her language about women it was was awful it was all kind of shrouded in this like like maggie said historical context of like this is how it's traditionally been so i'm going to speak to it but so much has happened since then too julie that i feel like it feels very outdated to us because literally all of these movements have happened in the last 15 20 years And this already feels like that language already feels outdated to us. But if we had listened to this pre all of these different things happening, I don't think it would it would be like, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that is true. That is how it traditionally is. But can we define what the two income trap is as well? Because I feel like she never actually clearly states it in the book. She just kind of like talks about themes around it, but she never says this is what the two income trap is.
0: The way I've and Maggie, I might let you correct me in case I'm (laughs) wrong here, but um, because I'm guessing you've now read this at least twice. Yes. So. Whenever I've been talking to clients, I have a lot of clients who we just talk about what we've been reading or watching more often for me. Um, And I was like, yeah, I'm reading this book called The Two Income Trap. And it's basically about, like, it posits that when traditionally we had... the mother staying home, we had a one person in a family earning income. Um, Now, with the shift of women going into the workforce, we now have two people in the family earning income, and that doubles the possibility of one person losing their income. Uh, And we're basically... Moving moved into a society where we are now, every family is dependent on two full incomes instead of one. And so the lifestyles have inflated to fill up a cup that's big enough for two full incomes. So if one of them loses their job, then we now have a lifestyle that completely overfills the size cup we have available. Um, and that's what's leading to the statistic of yeah. more Americans having re, filing for bankruptcy than having a heart attack every year. That's bananas. I feel like, yeah, that's sort of the takeaway that I
2: would want out of this book. I wrote down a quote which kind of says what you just said um, that I read from a review that said, this book is a large-scale analysis of the causes of bankruptcy in American families The pattern found is that two income increases the risk of bankruptcy because the family consumes on a level that requires two incomes to support it. However, two incomes can mean twice the chance of something going wrong, like a layoff, health problem, or pregnancy. It also debunks myths like spending on luxury food and electronics as being a major cause of bankruptcy. So for me, it's not that two people shouldn't both be working. It's that if you have two incomes, you should be cognizant of not having a lifestyle Mm -hmm. that's like going to be problematic if, if one person gets sick or something like that, which is like a storyline that has played out through American economic history.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Two good financial, I think advice that she gives, which we've talked about time and time again through other books that we've read on this podcast. Um, She says, make sure you don't get into debt, right? Like pay off all your most important bills and then if you have extra money, uh, spend it however you want, as long as your bills are getting paid um, and then have emergency funds set aside for any uh, specific life events like divorce, death, etc. cetera. So it's like if you can tr- if you can do those two things, then you're in a good place, um, which we've talked about too before is like try to pay off those credit card bills first. Try to pay off the things first that are going to have the highest interest rates that are the most important things. Um, that you need to pay like your utility bills to keep your lights on, things like that. So I do think that's like solid general invest, like financial advice that a lot of books repeat over and over again. Um, she does kind of get into some, one thing that I thought was really interesting that i didn't necessarily agree with her on um she's very like obviously pro middle class family she loves to talk about the middle class it's all about the golden hilarious because i feel like she's not very middle class yes but also i do feel like she kind of like doesn't really address a lot of these policies and how they would affect like lower class but that's not the target she's going she, she's clearly like writing this book for the middle class um but she says that she says a couple things around children that i thought were interesting um she states that you know obviously uh statistically children are the single biggest burden financially on any anyone um which is true and it directly relates to your chances of going bankrupt so going childless reduces your chances of going right ra- bankrupt by 66 percent. that's crazy which that's crazy. is insane to me um and i would i would still believe that that's probably a fairly accurate percentage um and then uh she's so she's Towards the end of the chapter, she's talking a lot about, like, being childless and choosing to be childless versus having children. Now,
1: do you remember if that was childless and married or just childless versus having a
3: child? Childless single, I believe. Like, she didn't even mention the marriage. She said, if you're a woman who chooses to be childless, to not have children. Right. Because divorce and bankruptcy
1: are so closely tied. Right. That unless we're looking at married people who have children... Versus like
3: married people who don't
1: or unmarried like a single person oh, who has yeah, yeah. a child yeah or chooses to go childless right like right. somebody who is unmarried and childless mm-hmm. i feel like counting that in the stat skews it so much versus married and childless? versus like yes the married yeah, i mean they're completely children. different categories
3: but i would i would assume that being unmarried or being married with no children you also decrease your chances of debt it's because children are one of your biggest factors for debt is like having a family. That's just that's the like a, a lot of what she talks about anyways in the book is like she keeps talking about families and the burden on fam like financial burden on families. But she also talked a little bit. She touched a little bit on the history of why people used to view children as economic assets, which i've i mean i've specifically made jokes to zach about this before where i'm like children used to be useful they put them to work on the farm they fucking took care of things around the house they took care of their little kid their children you know the other children they helped raise everybody they helped cook like they actually did things yeah now kids don't do anything anymore and that is fucking
2: true used to joke about the reason they had us was so that we could do chores yes
3: (laughs) yeah but that was like a real thing out for them (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> exactly. That's the point. It's like you, you have children thinking they're going to contribute in this way. Doesn't necessarily pan out. But her argument for still having children, because she makes this whole point about like, yes, you are right to assume that being childless would save you a fuck ton of money and time and like energy. But you should still have children because it benefits society. And who's going to take care of the old people and pay their taxes if you don't have kids? And I was like, fuck that Mm -hmm. the robots will take care of me Mm -hmm. (laughs) um so that i didn't agree with of like oh i should have such i should have a child to like secure the future of america fuck america like fuck all of y'all what do i there's no future to america there is no No. future (laughs) There's um, I thought that was like a weird argument on her. It was like a half-hearted argument to be like, but you should still have kids because the future of well, America. That's the argument you make when your salary or your future
1: salary, as you're clearly on track to become a politician, is funded by taxpayers. And if mm-hmm. people don't birth future taxpayers, your paycheck goes away. Yeah.
3: she her, her entire argument was literally, we need people for the military. We need people to take care of us when we're old. And we need people to pay taxes. That was her entire argument for having children. And she even said it's not going to directly benefit you as a parent. You will be more likely to go into bankruptcy, but it'll benefit society as a whole.
2: Well, also, I feel like any person who's p- trying to look good in the public eye can't write a book that just says, Don't have children.
3: Right? <laughs> I'm going to do it. <laughs> 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 well, you don't care about the public eye. Like,
2: Elizabeth Warren does care about what people think of her, right? So right. I just
3: love, that it was just clearly such a half-hearted argument of like, but this is why you should do it, right. you know? She, she could have <laughs> talked about
1: a lot of the reasons people have children. When people decide they want to have a children, when they actively think it through and decide they want to have children, it's not so that they can birth a future taxpayer. Yeah. But that's what she
3: highlighted in the book. Yeah. That was a little like to me, like you're not really like you're not really. How much in do you love here. your daughter?
2: Elizabeth. Right, exactly.
3: <laughs> yeah, to me it was like, yeah, I don't know if that's the best argument. I'm not her real. Me? Her real argument is
0: just like, yeah, y'all have kids so that someone will pay me once I'm a politician, but also so you can have
3: grandkids.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's what the only reason anyone wants kids, including maybe myself. Yeah, it's because eventually I want grandkids.
3: You and my mother, man, y'all could just get together for coffee and talk about grandkids all day. And there's no guarantee you get grandkids. No. There's no guarantee. One thing I was going to bring up about why
2: maybe this book spoke to me differently than you guys a little bit is because I was a child of divorce in the '90s, mm-hmm. and this that story is is well written out in this book, and like a lot of things that she's like, you know, sixty percent of blah, blah blah women divorce bankruptcy, like are all things i saw firsthand like parent parental financial struggles like child support struggles like both parents having a real shit time financially because of divorce and living beyond their means with two incomes like i saw that story play out so i was just like yeah that kind of speaks to me i saw this happen yeah Mm -hmm. that makes sense
1: that That makes so much sense And your mother is a high income earner. So if it was that terrible for your mother, like both your parents, but like the financial discrepancy post-divorce to your mother was dramatically more than to your father from what I understand
2: yeah i mean it was bad for both of them right but yeah
1: probably worse for but me. imagine if she had been a stay-at-home mom she probably would have never been able to escape what zach has dubbed the golden handcuffs of marriage
2: right like if she didn't have an income already she would not she have, would have, have resources had to stay in a relationship that wasn't
1: ideal right so like divorce yeah. not even an option she cannot remove herself from a situation that is bad for her and she could not remove herself and her children from a situation and not to Which say that like history that of was women. right and not to say that that was the situation for your family but like for a lot of families that is a position women find themselves in. They're in an unsafe situation for themselves and their children, and they do not have the financial resources to remove themselves. One of like the single income trap things I was talking about, but also what happens to the finances after that? Like even the government program of social security, which she didn't mention in this book, your right to social security and retirement is based on the income you contribute during your working years. So if you are the partner who as a family, you guys decide you are staying home. Contributions are not being made relative to income for you the same way as they are for your spouse who's mm. working. So your spouse gets more in retirement than you do. And if you're not married for 10 years before divorce or if you get remarried post-divorce, you're not entitled to any of what was contributed for your partner. Mm. Or like if the pension, like in the pension era, if the husband had a pension, but it wasn't fully vested at the time you got a divorce, the full value, full future value of the pension isn't necessarily accounted for in the divorce. And you didn't contribute anything to your retirement because the pension was plenty enough to cover both of you. You fucked. That's a horror. As a woman. So just like all of these things where if you aren't part of the workforce, It's so bad. And even for women who are high income earners in the workforce, it's still disproportionately affecting women.
3: And not to mention like on top of that, women don't necessarily are we're not always taught to advocate for ourselves and to we're not encouraged to learn about our financial options. So if you're stuck in a in a situation where maybe you're, you know, a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home partner. You don't necessarily know what all your options are when it comes to safety and security. Like for example, the spousal IRA. I had no idea that that was even a thing until today. But that is something that you could ask of your partner. Like I'm staying home. I am contributing economically to our lives by raising our children by doing like doing everything outside of you know uh, house related outside of what you're doing. This I, is legitimate right, work. This is if legitimate. If you, you are okay not labor, doing
1: it. You are paying
3: a lot of money to have it done by someone. Thousands of dollars a month, at least, to do everything that these women do for free at home. So you should absolutely feel inclined to ask your partner to open up a spousal IRA for you and contribute to it monthly towards your retirement in your name. And I was just reading the parameters. The working spouse's income must equal or exceed the total IRA contributions made on behalf of both spouses. so you can you you cannot contribute more to retirement than you make yeah is what that but it would be incredible if you could yeah (laughs) but that sounds like you can still contribute quite a bit of money as the working spouse to your partner's ira if you felt so inclined which i would say anyone that's at that's a stay-at-home mom i would honestly say maybe you should look into that maybe you should ask that of your partner because it does give you a little bit more security
2: yeah i mean my ultimate takeaway is that not that there should be a stay-at-home parent but that if you have two incomes and both people are working, don't over-consume. Like, don't consider that to be a safety net. Yeah. Consider yourself, like... I don't know, try to live off of one income and have two incomes
3: coming in. That's exactly one of her points Like yeah. that I wrote down in her like summary chapter. She says second, the second income should be looked at as a safety net when times are bad, you, but you should be able to try to survive off of one income, meaning you can pay all of your bills and everything off of just one person's income. And the extra income is like you stow away for like, you know, emergencies and whatnot. Which is ideal. Like not a lot of people. Most everyone people can't can do, do that. that right? Yeah, but, that sounds so I'm just like thinking it about sounds, it yes. now. Like, it sounds impossible.
0: I've made one income. Yeah. I, I'm one person who've who's earned money. And now I'm dating another person who earns money. And it's like we've we've like budgeted our lives to support ourselves with the idea of supporting right. another person. And then what if we and then have add a kids kid? on top of that? Like yeah. what
3: do you how well how that's part of the, the trap, the right? Is yeah, like yep. well that's the biggest thing too is moving to a house like and she keeps talking about this a lot in the book is buying a house that you can't really afford because you want to offer the best opportunity for your children's to succeed in life by having a, by being in a good school district. So that's how, like the trap that you fall into is like I need to buy a house that's maybe a little bit stretching our budget, but we both have to work to be able to afford it. And if anything goes wrong, we could lose this house, but we really need it so we can stay in a good school district. And like, it just escalates. It was interesting, and I mentioned this to you a little bit uh, when we were painting your house, um, how... Her solution to that, I didn't necessarily agree with. I don't know a lot about like the education like sphere, but she's she very was, pro education vouchers. Yes, yeah, she was very much about like vouchers and you know, as a way for like maybe lower income kids to be able to move into like some of them can move into better school districts and that would like alleviate whatever whatever she like went on about this for a while and the whole time that I was reading this chapter I was just thinking why can't we just make schools better like why can't we just have better education for everybody why can't we just pay teachers more and have that like training to be a teacher harder so that we all have better schools and there are no bad school districts I
2: read some commentary on this today actually on a Canadian Reddit thread that was talking about this book and they were saying well in Canada a lot of the schools actually like there isn't a big difference between schools or like they're generically better so what the thread was saying and the result was that it's just more expensive everywhere and that it didn't actually solve right. any of the problems but it's so like that i don't know if yeah i, I don't think that, though, that her that as solution. someone
1: who went to a really shitty school in canada i might beg to disagree <laughs> i changed to the catholic school system for a part of it just to get away from
3: the public schools. well i guess what i'm saying is i agree with taylor i don't know that that's a solution i don't to the problem exactly i i just think like if we just i think a better education is a solution to our, a lot of our problems if we just educated people And cared about each other the world would probably be a lot better place but like why don't we just have better education i would be fine with some of my taxes going towards all school districts being better and everyone being educated because that means less assholes in the world that don't know what the fuck they're talking about and get better jobs and like you just say me like it benefits everybody if everyone's educated so why can't we just make our schools better why can't we just spend money on that we spend literally billions of dollars on military equipment but we oh, can't spend. We
1: spend more per student than I think any other country in the world.
3: Then how in our education our ca- system, then how is it so bad?
1: That's such we're a great We're clearly question. not
3: doing it right. We're not
1: paying the teachers with that money. That's we're not, sure. we're not because
3: you know what? We went to a good school district and I feel like our fucking school was a joke. Like I just cannot imagine what it's like to be in a shitty school district and how even worse the teachers are. I feel like our teachers were subpar. But like there were some good ones. There were some decent ones, but none that like inspired me, you know, where I was like, oh, They're teachers. They're not motivational speakers. They should be. That's my point, is that they fucking should be. They should be inspiring every single goddamn little toddler in that
1: school. Well, unfortunately, they're teaching to the test, the standardized test. So that's not the most inspiring curriculum, and they don't have time for anything beyond that. So may we need to rewrite the whole education system. We do need to system. rewrite the whole education
3: system. <laughs>
1: um, I'm not anti-school voucher. It's been pretty promising in some of the sort of beta tests that have been done on school vouchers. And it actually contributes to a lot of what you're asking for is like money actually going like per student into the classroom that they're sitting in and to that teacher. So like school voucher programs are actually pretty compelling they have a totally different set of issues compared to our current funding system.
3: I just don't think they're the best solution. I'm not saying they're not a bad, a good solution. Right. I just don't think it's the best solution.
1: Right. I just think the the reason she is pushing that is that right now you're limited in the options of what schools you can go to based on being on one side of the street or the other side of the street. Yeah. And the school voucher system removes that which then takes away a lot of the social inequities we see in real estate, where it's like literally – the people who are in this neighborhood who were more impoverished got worse schools put here. So no one comes here and brings money and they are blocked out of going anywhere else. They're stuck. So what it does, it gives them a certain level of mobility education wise and potentially brings more money into their district, which might not get as much because they don't have high enough property values. So they don't get as much property tax kickback. Right. So it literally just sort of equalizes that by removing these, Imaginary boundaries,
3: right? But yeah, I I can see how it might be beneficial. But again, it just seems far from ideal. It was like some kids could, like, it just didn't seem like it would be a big enough impact. Well, you then you have rich people being like, why am I paying more money? Well, you know, you just, anything that pisses off rich people is probably not ultimately going to work. Well, so it's like, there are I can't- lo-
1: There are actually a lot of really wealthy people who are pro-voucher systems. No, that's good.
2: I, yeah. yeah, I did a project <laughs> on this in college, actually. And one of the cons is that it will drive the wealthy to start using private schools, instead of vouchers but obviously not everyone but i mean yeah like julie they already do that yeah i was like they already (laughs) do that like julie said both there's shitty things on both sides i don't think there's an ultimate solution to education and if there was we would be rich as fuck for thinking of it
3: (laughs) just better
1: education the whole system needs a rewrite for sure and if one of the biggest issue with the voucher system is increased transportation costs and now we have technology that can help with routing and figuring out how we get students to their chosen school i would rather have that problem than continued poverty locked into
3: these imaginary neighborhood yeah. boundaries agreed there needs to be some kind of solution i just wish that like we just valued education more and like actually cared about educating all of our citizens to a level where everyone could get a good job and have the same opportunities.
2: (laughs) I know someone who owns a school. Maybe we can get her on our podcast sometime. Yeah, that That would would be be awesome. She is a listener.
3: That would be great. I would love to hear her thoughts on education. It doesn't directly affect me because I probably won't have children, but I do care, though, because it does make our society better when we have more educated people. Yeah. I bet you'd have some really
2: um thoughtful insight on the issue. Would love that.
3: So yeah, I did I did I did like the book because for certain reasons. I there are some things I had problems with, but I did like that it made me think more about the education system, bankruptcy, mortgages as a whole. I hadn't really thought much about that, but and how all those things kind of tie together. And she talked a little bit about like deregulating the mortgage industry versus regulating the mortgage industry and how that I don't know. Did you look up any, like, stats about this? Like, updated stats? I haven't. I haven't looked up stats, but... Reading a book written in 2003 about subprime
1: mortgages yeah. is so far removed from our current reality True. in the mortgage industry because of 2008 and the Dodd Frank Act and
0: everything. I did that's think changed it was interesting in that
2: she like kind of called that shit out totally. though, like way before it happened. I, I was like, that was kind of insightful.
0: It was very ominous. You're like, oh Elizabeth, if you only knew what happened <laughs> in a yeah. few years. Right, except that the
1: what she was highlighting was predatory lending and how the banks are making so much money offering these subprime mortgages and taking advantage of people but in 2008 what happened is the five biggest financial institutions in this country got caught with their pants down and all had to be bailed out by the taxpayers so what she was highlighting isn't the full picture of like what happened. It wasn't just the people who lost out when they ended up in foreclosure on their house. I just think that there was so much more in 2008. It was such a compounding problem. And there were so many issues that got exposed Mm -hmm. well beyond just like subprime mortgages and predatory lending.
3: I do think it's interesting though, because it does make you think more about she, she's very clear in suggesting to the listener you need to be careful about anytime you take out you know a mortgage or a loan or anything you you need to remember that they're not your friend. they're not on your side. Mm-hmm. They're out to make the most money possible off of you. And if you're uneducated, which a lot of us are about, Lo- lending practices and mortgages if you don't know what you're getting into then you could end up in a fucking shit show and so that goes back to what we've been talking about with real estate and having a team that you really trust that has your back to do what's best for you because otherwise you could be signing off something that you don't even realize you're doing
1: right and they, they count
3: of- on you being ignorant
1: mm-hmm. a lot of it is super obscure yeah and buried in jargon and i
3: and i do kind of agree with her because i always go back and forth about regulation versus deregulation with industries because like in theory deregulation sounds great but in practice it can it can lead to a lot of problems and one thing she brought up that i think i you know i agree with is the fact that when you deregulate certain markets like mortgage mortgages and things like that People are inherently biased and they're statistically people of color were getting worse interest rates and worst contracts and worse loans on mortgages than people than white people who made less money than them. Right. So black people that made more money were getting worse interest rates and shittier loans than white people that made less money. Right. Just because we're fucking racist. Super racially targeted. That shit is like, how do you fix that? Like deregulation sounds great in theory, but how do you fix that shit? How do you fix being a woman or being a woman of color specifically and be able to really compete and get fair rates in a world where people don't see you as the same Mm -hmm. i just that to me is my biggest hang-up when i like try to think about regulation versus deregulation in these different industries i just don't trust people not to be fucking misogynistic racist assholes
1: unfortunately i also don't trust the government to be above that because they've oftentimes proven they're not
3: yeah but we still have I'm some not say in the pro government. Pro or anti, like, you know regulation, mean?
1: deregulation. I'm just saying the demographics of the people in control of the government are often very similar to the demographics but, of people know, in control of the corporate that. world.
3: We can change that. With time. With time. And death. But that's what I'm saying is, like, we have more <laughs> control over that than private. You know, Privately owned companies.
2: Yeah, I'm. I'm I'm with you, Taylor. I'm with you. (laughs)
3: I'm with you. And I think it's a super valid point. They work for dollars too. They work for us. It's true. Anyways, it did, I, I do appreciate the book for making me think about a lot of these like broader concepts.
2: Yeah, a lot of that uh, stuff, like you said, is just stuff I had never thought about before. And I do agree with Julie. There are a lot of problems with the book, and especially reading anything written by a politician. From
3: 2003. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, have to remember, they're a politician. Like I said earlier, they care about their image. But with that said, I think the book made me think a lot. I told you guys that this book is recommended a lot on like some of the personal finance forums and to prove that point, it was recommended this week on the Canadian housing market forum on Reddit. So we definitely...
3: Julie doesn't trust anything Canadian. (laughs) Yeah, I know. But I mentioned (laughs) how bad the
2: education system is. (laughs) That's just to say this book is regularly thrown out. Like a book from 2003 is regularly thrown out as like recommended reading. So I think it was worthwhile that we read and discussed it. I completely um, agree with you, Maggie. I'm glad I read it. Thank you, Taylor.
0: Well, and one thing that I found very sexy about this book um, is that it like... She really talks about destigmatizing bankruptcy, which is not something we've explicitly talked about before because I didn't realize how prevalent bankruptcy is and how easy one person can find in themselves in that situation. And yeah, I think a lot of what she was talking about is like, there's no shame in this. There's like, it's the, like what we were talking about debt, like the system is designed for you to be in debt. Like she yeah. kind of had a similar approach, like, don't be ashamed of being bankrupt. Like, this is something that, Anyone could fall into given the right set of circumstances. And I really appreciated that because it seems kind of radical to attempt to destigmatize bankruptcy because it does feel like such a like black mark and like yeah and i think people are very
3: ashamed of it (gasps) yeah you know what's really embarrassing is i didn't know that individuals could file for bankruptcy until i read this book (laughs) i thought thought thought
1: only companies could file for bankruptcy (laughs) that's not embarrassing and in fact it's another failure of the education system because In addition to destigmatizing it, it's explaining to people that bankruptcy is a tool. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is a tool at your disposal that is very useful in certain circumstances that are irrecoverable otherwise, where you can just get a reset. It's not easy, but you get a reset and you get to rebuild your financial life. And it's very important that people are aware of that Mm -hmm. and know that it is an option and something that you should explore long before you've really, you know, there there are so many other health and stress and family and relationship implications that people often go through by yeah. really hitting financial ruin when they could have pulled the parachute, gone through bankruptcy much earlier in the process. When they knew it was all, you know, a mudslide at that point before they lost all the other things like health and
2: Yeah, in the book they talk about like some families not buying groceries, mm-hmm. so yeah. it's like right. not paying your medical bills. It's like, you know, if you're at that point, you should be eating, like you should
3: yeah. have food. Right. So <laughs> based off like what we've read in the book and kind of y'all's own take on it, at what point do you think someone should file bankruptcy? What are kind of the kind of like common signs I don't know that I've done enough research on that, but I would say
2: if you're not buying groceries and you're like in a hunger situation, you should probably have thought about it a little sooner. Yeah.
3: yeah. And it probably wouldn't be a bad idea. You know, if if you are struggling financially and you just it just feels like you keep getting deeper and deeper and you don't see a way out, just talk to a bankruptcy lawyer, right? Like there's so many bankruptcy lawyers that could even just talking to a few of them and getting an idea of like, at what point should I consider this might be a good option Mm -hmm. well
1: there are a lot of community organizations that will provide guidance in those situations Mm -hmm. like the united way here in austin is really amazing they have a navigation center that you can call at any time to navigate to help you navigate any issue you're having Mm -hmm. where they will literally either have some answers for you specific to that because they've done the research or they can connect you with the other nonprofit organizations in the city that specialize in those things. Mm -hmm. So find your local resources and there'll be someone who's sort of a guidance counselor who can help you navigate that.
2: That's great information. One of the things I thought was crazy, which I didn't really realize is the scams surrounded on people who have recently gone bankrupt. Mm -hmm. And yeah, yeah, that was That's rough to hear where there's like people waiting outside the bankruptcy courts with little old ladies, little old ladies waiting with credit cards where or like you agree to pay back your line of credit. And then they'll give you a new credit card, and it's like such a scam because the whole point is that you just got rid of that line of credit. Yeah. Right. Right. And so you shouldn't have to pay it back, and then you get scammed by these. It's fucking gross. And the new credit card has an insane interest Thousand rate. TR, yeah. Like yes. Something like that, yeah. which is it's mind so blowing. Up. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The bankruptcy stuff is wild, and bankruptcy lasts on your record, I believe, like on your credit record for seven years. Yeah. And then it goes away. So, those seven years might be kind of rough. You're operating largely from a cash basis, mm-hmm. but a lot of your debts are eligible to be wiped out in bankruptcy, not student loans. That is bananas to me. Yeah. If we're going to bail out that is the five largest insane. banks in this country because they mm-hmm. fucked up their businesses
3: and the taxpayers have but to we front won't bail that, out but we can't. People yeah. with student loans. Yeah. Who actually pay the taxes to support those banks. It is mind boggling (laughs) to me how, I mean, I know we've talked about this, but like literally at 18, you sign over hundreds of thousands of dollars and that is something you will never be forgiven for. That is a debt that will never be forgiven.
1: Well, the other thing in the book that did blow my mind was when they were talking about credit card companies trying to take priority over Like in a divorce, the spouse who gets child support falling at a lower priority than credit card companies. Like Mm -hmm. this was in the bankruptcy bill. Oh,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. And I don't know what the current state and situation is, but the fact that a credit card company would take a higher precedent than the children of the divorced spouse. Mm -hmm. Bananas. The credit card companies are making enough money. They can go to the back of the line.
2: The other one that I thought was interesting that she talked about, which we don't spend a lot of time on, but was just like that. I liked that she addressed that child support can be a huge financial and oftentimes debilitating burden on men. Yeah. And you don't often hear that side of the argument. And I think it's an important one to consider.
3: For sure. I, d- I dated a guy with a kid and Becca's also dated a guy with a kid. Um. Sorry to call you out, but That's true. I'm <laughs> uh, not he, he talked a lot about this. Uh we did we dated very briefly, like three months or so, but he had his kid 50-50. Like he split 50-50 time. The kid lived with him, he had a house big enough for the kid and a whole room and everything. And he still had to pay child support to his ex-wife, even though he was taking care of the kid 50% of the time and sharing equal expenses.
1: Very situation to situation
3: depends. It does vary a lot. But that was a situation where I was like, the system has failed you specifically. Right. If that's the full
1: details of that situation, that does sound
3: like I I went to like I I inspected it, too. I checked it out because I was like, there's no way I went to his house like his kid was there like he had fucking like a big house and a room for him. And like it was a thing.
1: That's not the part of the situation. I meant if there was actually if it wasn't all child support was also spousal alimony or something like that. Right he he's because she exited the workforce and didn't have the same earning potential by the time they got you know that type of stuff right so that's like if that's the full detail is that it was specifically child support and she's not paying the private school bills with that that he's not contributing to separately like you know
3: true yeah i don't know the whole her side of story if she was like not working or something for a while But I do, I have heard that sentiment from men that like, if you do take on more child responsibility, you're not necessarily rewarded for that in the courts.
1: Right. And I agree with Maggie as well, or, and what you were saying earlier that- Probably 99% of cases, the court does not nail the allocation perfectly one way or the other. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Of course, I'm saying child support is an important thing. But yeah, I think there's an example in the book where the husband or whatever ex-husband ends up being like below poverty line after Mm -hmm. paying child support. it's like, oh, and it's a gray area and it's an ethical area. Like all ethics there, there's many opinions, but it's like, at what point is that like a good choice.
3: Right. Well, yeah, I mean the mom was probably also an economic fucking failure, but Yeah. I just yeah, that specific I remember that scenario. And that pissed me off because then she was like, and now he has this new family. He also has to take care of, and I was like, why does he just take care of the fucking first one? Like, why is <laughs> people popping out babies they can't afford and fucking going? To, I I don't know. I try not to judge because it's like everyone's situation is different. But part of me is like, why are you getting yourself into that situation? Why are you fucking jerking off into every person you see and having eighteen children that you can't raise? I'm not sure that was the exact scenario, but yes, <laughs> why why you would get into a
1: second marriage and choose to have more new children not just right. the absorbed family
2: you know <sighs> so I don't, I don't think a lot of people think these things through entirely
3: but yeah it's I think a lot of people think with their penises is the problem.
0: Yeah, it's crazy to me that people don't lie awake const like every night being like, how can it be ethical to have children? Or like, how do I convince <laughs> myself that it's ethical to have children? Like, it just seems like... And like, how does anyone... I know I've already said this, but how does anyone afford any children? I don't understand. I really don't understand
3: it. It seems impossible.
2: Yeah. Oh, you should... What are their names? Um... They're in the like fi- er- retire early realm and they have kids and they talk a lot about having kids and retiring early. They're the frugal, woods.
0: frugal woods. I frugal knew it
1: as yeah.
2: <laughs> They talk a lot about having kids and being financially responsible about like them not being a huge financial burden on you.
3: Yeah. But they are to society, even if they're not a burden. (laughs) I'm sorry, it's true. Like you, which is fine. No, no. They're so good for the greater society and the tax bases. They have to serve in
0: our military, (laughs) Taylor. Cool. Okay. So is there anything that we want to top off our discussion of couples and finances and the two income trap?
2: um no thanks for reading that book and julie i did start the women have better sex oh yes with socialism um and i think i like
3: got to chapter one and took a nap but
2: i did start it That's fair and i'm <laughs> eager to discuss that more if anyone else wants to
3: also. yeah I'm gonna, I'm gonna look it up right now women have better sex under socialism
1: yeah Well, I might need a break, so I stop ranting for a few episodes.
2: Oh, yeah, they have them in the LA one. Well, you had mentioned doing another sex (laughs) episode, and we need to do a live podcast, which will probably be very basic financial stuff. So we'll have a break. Okay.
1: (laughs) And um, we need a pre-nup, post-nup episode.
0: I bet pre-nup, po-nup. pre nup pre pre I think that'll probably parallel the better sex under communism, right? Socialism, whatever. <laughs> I haven't read it. A little different. <laughs> under- <laughs> but I mean, like, could we marry Same that? generic.
1: So the better sex under socialism, we'll talk a lot more about like social safety nets, child care, equal opportunities for work, unpaid women's labor, and maternity leave and like all of those sort of like social policies more so than like a personal finance type thing like bankruptcy and divorce
0: thanks for joining us for this discussion of money and relationships and traps that people find themselves in um thanks for joining Again, <laughs> you it? no, you
1: got it, girl. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Thank point up, point up. You're so grateful. Pwn up,
0: pon up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, follow us on instagram at vaginance podcast go to our website vaginance.com and whatever you're listening on whatever however you're listening to this podcast right now go ahead and give us give us a little ranking give us a little five stars and then leave a little review of why you gave us five stars and then tell your friends the most important thing actually forget the other stuff the most important thing tell your friends, ask them to listen, uh, and then reach out to us because we want to hear from you and we want to hear from your friends. So, yeah, we look forward to that. I'm Becca. I'm Maggie. I'm Jules. I'm Treat Mama. That's Taylor Treat Mama. (laughs) (laughs) Treat Mama Taylor. (laughs) That's Treat Mama to you. And we're so glad you joined us. Looking forward to next time. Who dat? Joey with, Joey,
3: yes. with <laughs> Joey with a burger.
0: Joey with a burger. Joey, Joey with, with a burger. burger. Joey with a burger. Joey <laughs> with, with a burger. Joey with a burger. burger. Zach you take with a burger. <laughs> <laughs> zach has got a burger.